Well, good evening. We'll go ahead and get started. I know folks are still coming in, but I thought we'd uh, dive in. I'm excited to talk to you about this lesson. This, we're starting to get to the part of Revelation. Actually, about the next 10 weeks are just really exciting. But uh, seriously, I'm excited to talk to you about this lesson. Let me pray for us, and we'll uh, jump in. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thanks for bringing us together to dive into your word, and I know that it never returns void, and I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to educate us, but also to give us guidance. For I'm convinced that that's what your word is here for, is to draw us closer to you, and I pray that that happens tonight in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are, uh, by the way, we have plenty of room here, so feel free to invite your friends. It's not too late to jump into this series. And they're also, by the way, I think I mentioned this to you, but all these are the video, uh, audio, etc., are all online on crossingsokc.org. So if you miss one, you can catch up. But we uh, don't, don't bother to text in questions while you're watching it online because we're not checking. But here, you certainly can. And as a matter of fact, speaking of questions, there's the number. I think it's also on your handout. But if you have questions during class, we'll answer as many as we can uh, of your questions. We are just getting started. We're in a turning point in the book of Revelation. In our last lesson, you may remember we did chapters 1 through 3, which are the letters to the seven churches. I told you these are the words of Jesus that are probably the least read in the Bible. This is Jesus dictating to churches around 100 A.D. who are undergoing a lot of persecution. They're undergoing economic persecution, religious persecution, and social persecution. I hope you got a feel for the breadth of that uh, during our last lesson of what they were encountering. And Jesus speaks to them and he commends them for their endurance and warns them about compromising the truth. The lesson for us is we find ourselves in a very similar situation. Our culture absolutely hates what you think about the sanctity of life. Our culture really hates what you think about gender and gender roles. Our culture despises what you think about sexual morality. And our culture can't stand what you think about the corrosive power of greed in our world. And our culture is going to tell you, repent or you will be punished. We are going to face the same challenge that those seven churches did, that symbolic of all churches, and I'm convinced all churches through all time, is are we going to endure or will we be assimilated into our culture? Will we compromise the truth or will we endure with the truth? This next section in the book of Revelation really is set in counterpoint to that. So remember where we're coming from. We're coming from people who are living at that time, people who are living in our time, in the midst of a very hostile culture. And this next vision is going to be in counterpoint to that. Okay? We're looking at this from four different, four major views. So if you have friends who've grown up looking at one view of Revelation, and that's the way it's usually taught, we're going to just talk about a variety of points of view and some of the commonalities. Mainly what I'd like to do is decode some of the symbols so that you can figure this out for yourself. There's just some major themes that will jump out of this book, and we're all going to see it once we decode some of the symbols. Well, these four views are going to begin to diverge quite a bit if you remember the four different views we talked about really try to answer the question of when 
are these events happening in the past, now, in the future? And that's a good way to think about these four different views. Well, as we move into chapter 4, as a matter of fact, into this whole section of chapter 4 through chapter 19, this big section, these, ver these views are going to really diverge as to when and what is happening here. Whether it's the preterist who sees them happening early after the, uh, the prophecies themselves, really close to that time, or the historicist who sees all these visions being strung out throughout the whole church age, uh, including our present time, futurists who see these events predominantly in the future, or a symbolic or idealist view that says these aren't even intended to necessarily be real events. They're intended to be recurring themes that happen in all of our lives and throughout all of history. Well, as they begin to interpret these visions from chapter 4 through chapter 19, they're going to split apart. We're going to start by looking at a little bit different view of a couple of key concepts. Before we get into the visions of chapter 4 through chapter 19, I want to talk to you about two concepts. One is the concept of the tribulation. These four views are going to disagree about that. And I want to talk to you about the rapture. And these four views are going to disagree about that as well. But as we get into chapter 4, we begin what is called the tribulation. I'm going to show you a chart and this chart is, is looking at it from one particular point of view, and that's the futurist view. And I'm going to use it, though, because it's such a good little chart, to help explain the idea of the tribulation and the rapture. And once we understand that, we'll dive into the visions in chapter 4 and 5. This chart is a futurist view, and even the futurists don't agree completely. It's not like there's this monolithic view. But fundamentally, the futurist view, which says chapter 4 through chapter 19 are all going to happen near, right before the end of time. And chapter 4 through chapter 19 is what is called the tribulation. So if you want to write that on your chart, on your handout, that's chapter 4 through 19. By the way, the millennium is chapter 20. Big disagreements about that. We'll talk about it when we get there. And then eternity, the idea of heaven, is chapter 21 and 22. So that's kind of a good way to think about the book of Revelation. One of the things that marks the futurist point of view is it understands the book of Revelation as being very linear in time. That's one of the reasons it's very popular, but it's only one way to look at it. But it makes for nice charts. Futurists have the best charts. Symbolic, their charts are going everywhere. I mean, you can't even get a timeline out of this thing, right? But futurists, very specific linear time frame. Futurists believe tribulation, chapter 4 through 19, followed by chapter 20, a thousand year reign, followed by chapter 21 and 22. So that's their understanding. Most futurists understand the tribulation, chapters 4 through 19, to be a seven year period of time that's coming near the end of time. Well, this is useful because it just gives you a nice way to look at it. Other points of view, for example, the preterists, remember who say that chapter 4 through 19 happened close to the time of the writing, they don't see that at tribulation at the end of time. They see it as already having been fulfilled in events around the time of John. Historicists, they look at that tribulation, they see chapter 4 through 19, they don't say this is something that's going to happen, they say this is a roadmap of everything that happened to the church from the first coming of Christ, from the cross up there, 
to the second coming of Christ sometime in the future. And so the tribulation isn't a seven-year period out in the future. Chapter 4 through 19 is describing various things that have happened in history and are happening now. Futurist says what you see on the chart, and then symbolic point of view says there is no such thing as a specific period of tribulation. And in fact, in our next lesson, I'm going to show you, because it's very beautiful, what the symbolic view, how they understand the structure and of chapter 4 through 19, and it's just really different. But we'll talk about that in our next lesson. So the tribulation is the time in which this judgment of God happens. In the tribulation, chapters 4 through 19, you are going to see some wild judgments from God and huge battles with evil. And that's partly why it's called the time of trial or trouble or tribulation. The rapture is a little bit different event. And I want to talk about the rapture as what it is and then when it is. I'll put this chart back up in just a little bit. I want to talk about what the rapture is and then we'll talk about when it is because you can see even amongst futurists there are three choices of when it happens. But let's talk about what it is. So we know what the tribulation is. It is, depending on your view, whenever these visions in chapter 4 through 19 are happening, whenever all this trouble and difficulty is happening, that's when that is. The rapture is an interesting event. It has come down to us today as an event that's going to happen when you get swooshed away and your cell phone clatters in mid-sentence to the floor and your clothes are left there, your car keeps going and crashes into somebody. If your pilot is a Christian, your plane is going to crash. I mean, the whole left-behind scenario is like, poof! Everybody gets caught up in the air who is a Christian and everybody else is left behind and all kinds of bad things are happening. And then we're going to jump into this time period. The rapture then being a miraculous taking of Christians off of the earth. That's the way it's come down to us. There are really only two places in Scripture in the New Testament that, that talk about this in, in even a remotely direct way. And we're going to look at one of them. The First Corinthians passage talks about the idea of Paul saying, in the blink of an eye, when the trumpet sounds, we're going to be changed. He said, we're going to leave these corrupt bodies and we're going to turn into these uncorrupted bodies. In other words, we're going to have heavenly bodies. And that's about all he says. He says it's going to happen in the blink of an eye. Something's going to happen at the trumpet sound, and, and basically the implication is the coming of Christ. First Thessalonians talks about this a little bit more specifically, so we're going to look at that passage. By the way, the word rapture doesn't appear anywhere in the New Testament, nor in the book of Revelation. The, word, the idea of a rapture is a, a conclusion it's an inference that is drawn. And that's why you're going to see people that believe in the rapture and people that don't believe in the rapture. But first of all, what is it? In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says this, according to the Lord's own word, I'm going to tell you that we who are still alive, because there was some concern that uh, basically what happened to the people who are dead, you know, when Jesus comes, are they just out of luck? And he's writing this to reassure them. He says, now, we are still alive who are left when the Lord comes, will not precede those who have died, who've fallen asleep. He said it's not like they've missed out. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel and a trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. 
then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. This is the rapture. This is the concept of the rapture, is this being caught up. The dead are raised, and we who are still alive are caught up in the air to be with Christ. You notice the word rapture is not in there, but it comes from a phrase in this verse. That word caught up into the air. When the Bible was translated from Greek into Latin, into the Roman Catholic Church, the Romans were ruling the world, so very early it was translated into Latin. The Latin word for caught up is rapio, which is where we get our word raptor, by the way, to seize or to catch up. And so this word rapio basically says we'll be raptured, meaning we'll be caught up in the air. And so our word rapture is just a description of this idea of being caught up with Christ in the air. It comes from that Latin word in this passage. And you won't see that word rapture anywhere in your Bible. It's an idea, it's a concept. So that's what it is and that's where it comes from. Okay? Now the question uh, before us is, when does it come? Well, that's where chapter 4 comes in. When is the rapture going to happen? Well, as chapter 4 begins and we begin this period of tribulation, these visions that are going to describe, depending on your view, these terrible judgments and these, this terrible battle with evil, the beginning of chapter 4 says, After this I looked, and there was a door open in heaven, and I heard the voice of the one speaking like a trumpet. We know that's Jesus who was speaking in chapter 1. It says, Come up here, and I'm going to show you what has to take place. In other words, I'm going to reveal these visions to you. Well, some think that that idea of come up here and John being spiritually transported into heaven is a symbol of the rapture of the church. That's a little thin, isn't it? And, and my point is, futurists are going to say, no, it's not thin, it's conclusively true. Well, it's thin, all right? Just to be fair, it's an inference. And the idea is, and it's based on several other facts, you know, that you put them together and you go, well, you know what, maybe that's a symbol that the church is being raptured. So, from a futurist point of view, you have this tribulation, and so you have what's called a pre tribulation, meaning before the trouble starts, rapture of the church. And it happens at chapter 4, verse 1. If you are a futurist, this is the variety that you want to be. You want to be a pre-tribulation uh, rapture person because you'd like to escape before the trouble, right? You want to get out before the difficulty. If you are a mid-tribulation, and I'll show you when we get to that, that there are futures who say, yeah, this is a seven year of tribulation, but the rapture is going to occur in the middle after three and a half years of this. And I'll show you why they think that when we get to that part. Then the rapture is going to happen. It's just going to happen in the middle. And then finally, there are those who say, no, I'm sorry. You're going to have to go through the seven years of trouble, but you'll be raptured at the end of that when Christ comes to set up his millennial kingdom. All right? So that's kind of the when. If you're a futurist, you get three flavors of when the rapture is going to happen. And futurists, by and large, believe in a rapture. The question for the other views is not, will we be caught up in the air? 
other views believe, 1 Thessalonians, that we'll be caught up in the air. The question is not, is there a rapture, meaning is there a time when we join Jesus Christ? The question is, is it a separate event from the second coming? Does that make sense? You notice on this chart that the futurists believe in the second coming of Christ. Happens at chapter 19, right before chapter 20. At the end of the tribulation, before, and futurists, by the way, believe in a thousand-year reign on earth. Not everybody does. We'll talk about that when we get there. But they believe Jesus really will come back to the earth, be the second coming, and he's going to set up here on earth. They believe the rapture is a separate event from that. You have the rapture maybe at the beginning of the tribulation and the second coming. Other views don't see those as two different things. In other words, if you are a historicist, you basically see the tribulation as the whole time between the first coming and the second coming. And so here we are, church members living out these visions in chapter 4 through 19, and at the end of 19, Jesus is going to come back after an unbelievably big battle, which will be interesting when we get there. Big battle, Jesus comes back and will be caught up in the air with him then at the second coming of Christ. Symbolic point of view says, sure enough, there will literally be a time in the future when Jesus comes back and we will literally be caught up with him in the air at that time. But there won't be a rapture and a second coming. Is that helpful to you? So this is the concept of the rapture. In a futurist view, those are two different events. In the other views, they tend to be put together and say, no, it's just the second coming of Christ. All right? That's what the tribulation is, and that's what we're about to enter, and that's what the idea of the rapture is and how the different views see it a little bit differently. So let me pause, see if there are any questions about that. We'll come back to this a little bit, but this is a perfect time to talk about it because if you're a pre-tribulation futurist, you just got raptured, right, before we get into the bad stuff. Question. Is the pre-tribulation view supported by the fact that the church is never mentioned in the later verses of Revelation? Some of the arguments are the futurist view of the, of the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture, or rapture at chapter 4, before you get into the rest, is two, there are two big reasons. One, they do not find the church explicitly mentioned between chapter 4 and chapter 19, and so the inference is, now there are believers mentioned, but there's a different explanation, futurist explanation for that, but not the church. So the inference is, well, the church must be gone. Also, back in chapter 3, verse 10, in one of the letters, Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, he says to them, because you've kept my word with patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Understand that meaning I'll keep you from the tribulation. How do I keep you from the tribulation? Whoop, whisk you away. Rapture. So those are probably the two, two of the bigger reasons that futurists believe the rapture should happen before the tribulation. Good question. Um, okay. Referencing the verse in Thessalonians, Aren't the dead Christians already in heaven? How are they sleeping, waiting? I'm going to take the coward's way out on this. <laughs> I'm going to give you two views to choose from here. There are, are two ways of understanding this. First of all, 
the scripture is not unclear about a lot of things. I don't want you to feel like, oh, well, you can't tell what the scripture says. But on this issue, on revelation, on certain issues, God just isn't interested in defining it for us. This is one of those issues that's, that the scripture just doesn't tell us everything. You get hints in scripture that when you die, you go to sleep. I mean, if you want to think about it, it's like going to sleep. You go to sleep, and the next thing you know, you wake up. And you have no idea how much time has passed. When you wake up in the middle of the night, what do you do? You look at the clock, because you don't know what time it is, right? So my point is, is you, you don't recognize the time. One understanding of death is that you die, you sort of fall asleep, you don't know that time is passing, and then here's the second coming of Christ, and wow, I just died. I mean, I just went to sleep, right? That's one view. So in that view, the dead are sleeping right now, just to use a metaphor. They're asleep. And you would understand that passage is that the dead are sleeping and they're in the grave, basically. And so when Christ comes, they have to rise up, right? Another view is, and there are passages in Scripture that kind of hint to the idea that when you die, you are in heaven. In other words, or, I mean, I don't know why everybody says... When you, aren't the dead in heaven? Well, some. Stop and think about that. There's probably a booming business in hell too, right? If you listen to Jesus, he said, narrow is the way to heaven and wide is the way to hell, right? So probably fire's going as well as harps playing, right? So if you understand the dead is moving on, then interestingly, judgment must happen right then. That's interesting because judgment's going to happen in chapter 20 here. So it, it gets into mess with you on time, doesn't it? So there are people who understand that the dead are asleep. They all raised at the end. There are others who say, no, I see scriptures that kind of imply to me that perhaps the dead are already in heaven. I'm going to let you pick on that one, okay? But those are, those are the two main views. Okay, so if the Christian souls are asleep before the rapture, where are their souls? Well... That's a, it's an interesting question, but it presupposes the idea that a soul is something that you can feel and touch. By its very definition, a soul is something that does not exist in the four-dimensional time frame of what we have. In other words, what you're about to see in chapter 4 is an entire spiritual realm. What is a spiritual realm? Where is heaven? You know, it's on the other side of the end of the Milky Way, turn left, and there it is. You know, that's, it's really not ever given the idea that it's a specific place or that your soul is something that you can touch. And so it's, it's hard to answer that question in that, well, I don't know where it is. I don't actually know if it even makes sense to say, where is your soul? Does that make sense? It's sort of like saying, where is God? Well, don't know if that question makes sense. So I, I understand what you're saying. They're not in purgatory. Now that I can answer with some certainty for you. The idea of purgatory is even more tenuous than the idea of the rapture in the sense that in Scripture, purgatory is a place that God invented basically because you need to do something about those leftover sins that didn't get taken care of in confession. It's not a Protestant idea. It's more of a Catholic idea, and it's tied in with the idea of penance and the idea of I have, still have sins and I kind of need to work them off, and so I need a place to go, I need a gym, you know, where I can go work off those sins, right, so that I'm ready to go to heaven and I don't be taking these sins into heaven. And so Protestants don't, don't believe in purgatory, so no, you wouldn't be there if you're Protestant. Is that diplomatic enough? If you're a Protestant, no, you're, you're not in purgatory. Okay. 
Uh, where does the seven-year number come from? The seven-year number, I'll show you. When we, it'd just be easier to say, when we get to that part of the text, I'll show you there why the tribulation is thought to be seven years and why it's actually thought to be a three-and-a-half and a three-and-a-half. And there's some really interesting connections. By the way, you're going to see connections. I'm not going to mention it today, but there are huge connections between Daniel, the book of Daniel and Revelation, uh, starting in chapter 4. And there's some strong ones about this seven-year. We'll talk about the 70 weeks prophecy. We'll talk about the three-and-a-half days. Easier when we get there, I'll show you why they think it's seven years or why futurists think it's seven years. Good question. And so if the Christians are still on earth during the tribulation, like the third example up there, mm -hmm. wouldn't they be able to know when Christ would return, knowing it would be seven years? Well, here's the, here's the problem. Is you're right. The scripture says no one knows the day or the hour when he's going to return. You have to know when it starts to know when he's going to come back. So even if you hold this view where this, you're going to be raptured at the second coming, tribulation starts, you're still here, here's the problem. Was it just a bad day at the office, or was that the start of the tribulation? So futurists, by the way, just part of it, spend a lot of time looking at current events. Almost all the books written about the end time are written by futurists. Why? They'd like to know when the tribulation starts so they can know when the trouble ends. And so they be, you'll see all those books written about what's happening in the world and how does it match up with scripture and prophecy so they can know when the tribulation starts. It's inherently impossible to know when the tribulation starts. And so that's how you, you wouldn't be able to know when it ended. But for example, people have thought they were in the tribulation many times in history. Right now, you probably think, and some of you do, and I've already gotten some questions about who is the Antichrist give you two guesses who the leading candidate is at the moment. But my point is, is people want to know who the Antichrist, as difficult as we think it is now and what you see in the Middle East, and we'll pull some of those things in. We're going to talk about nuclear war in Middle East and Iran and China and Russia and current events. We'll talk about all that when we get to it. But if you live during the time of Attila the Hun, that's pretty brutal. You just might have thought that he was a pretty good candidate for the Antichrist and we are in the end times. And so my point to you is people have thought that many times throughout history. It's very difficult to know. When will this start? That's an argument, by the way, for the historicist position, which says, man, this stuff's been going on a long time and it's still going on now, meaning chapter 4 through 19 is the whole church age, all the way from 33 AD to who knows when, right? Or the symbolic point of view, which says, there have been antichrists many times in history. So that's one of the reasons that those views of Revelation seem to make some sense. So my point to you is not to argue for a particular view, but I hope this helps you see why people will understand Revelation a little differently. Okay? Well, let's dive into chapter 4 and 5, because this is the vision. And I think instead of putting up chapter 4 and 5, if you brought your Bibles, and I hope you did, you can make all kinds of notes in it. But I thought what might be easier is I'm just going to tell you what happens in chapter 4 and 5. Then we're going to break down the symbols one by one and tell you what each one of these things likely means, as best you can tell, and then you'll see a lesson just drop right out of this, chapter 4 and 5. All right, so now, remember where we are. John has just dictated these letters to the seven churches from Jesus, and it's just brutal persecution. They're like, oh my gosh, the Romans are so powerful. They've confiscated my house. They're killing Christians. We're socially ostracized. My children were kicked out of school because we're Christians. Just awful things are happening. 
So then in chapter 4, John says this. He says, then I heard that same voice. And he said, I want you to come up here because I need to show you what's going to happen after these things, after this persecution. He said, and so I looked, and there was a door open into heaven. And I looked in there, and there was a throne. And the one seated on the throne was, he glowed, but he glowed like jewels glow, if that makes any sense. He said, there was a rainbow over the top of the throne. And around that throne, though, there were 24 other thrones. And there were elders sitting on these thrones, and they had white clothes, and they had golden crowns on their head. But then right in front of the throne, there were thunder and lightning coming out of the throne, and there were seven torches, which is the sevenfold spirit of God. And then in front of that, though, there was this huge sea, but it was as still as glass. I mean, it almost looked like Waterford crystal in front of it. But stranger than that, around the throne, I saw these four living creatures, and they were very strange. They had eyes all over them, and each one had a different face. And one of them had a face like a lion, and one of them had a face like an ox. The other one had a face like a man, and the fourth one had a face like an eagle. And they had six wings and eyes everywhere around them. And they were constantly saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And every time they would say that, the elders would get off their thrones and they would fall on their faces before the throne of God and they would cast their crown before the throne and they would worship God. He said, and as I was looking, I saw, though, a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. And an angel came, and he said in a really loud voice, who is able to take the scroll and break open its seals? Because it had seven seals on it. And it was written on the inside, but there was some kind of writing on the outside too. Well, after he said this, no one came forward. And I began to weep bitterly because no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was worthy to go open that scroll. But as I was crying, one of the elders came to me and he said, don't cry anymore because the lion of Judah, the root of David has overcome and he is able to open that scroll. So I looked and sure enough, there in the midst of the four living creatures, around the throne, kind of between the elders, I saw a lamb that looked like it had been slain. And it was strange looking because it had seven horns and seven eyes. And the lamb reached up and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one who sat on the throne. And when he did that, the 24 elders... And the four living creatures all bowed down before him, and they were holding these bowls, golden bowls, that were full of the prayers of Christians. And they sang a new song, and they said, Worthy are you, O Lamb, because you were slain, and you ransomed people for God from every people and tribe and nation on the earth. 
But then I heard a voice and I looked around and there were a hundred million angels, all of them singing, worthy is the lamb that was slain. And while they were singing that, I literally heard every creature in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth saying to the one who sits on the throne and the lamb be honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the elders fell on their faces and the four living creatures said, Amen. Wow. That's what John saw. And that is a powerful vision. And we're going to decode what all the numbers and all the things mean, but I just want you to get the feeling of that. If he had been doing that now, he would have made a movie. But can you just feel the crescendo? What's happening? There is, first of all, this unbelievable throne and power and a hundred million angels and everything that's created singing this song of worship. And the living creatures say amen and the elders bow down and throw their thrones at the foot of the throne of God and worship him. It's a scene of unbelievable worship and unbelievable power. Now contrast that to what we just talked about, the persecution here. It's as though Jesus is saying to John, I know what you're going through, but let me show you what's really, really happening. You think reality is that the Roman Empire is powerful, that your culture is powerful, you have no idea what real power is. Let me show you the nature of reality. Does that make sense? It's like, wow. If you are a Christian who are struggling under trial, read chapter 4 and chapter 5. That's what's really happening in heaven. And so this time of tribulation opens with this unbelievable vision, very appropriately, this unbelievable vision of how great God is and how all of creation are worshiping him. Well, let's break down the, the uh, symbols just a little bit so we can decode this. The first is the throne. I want to talk to you a little bit uh, briefly, and I'm just kind of going to go through this. There's a huge contrast here. In chapter 2, verse 13, this is a letter to one of the churches, the one in Pergamum. He said, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Well, that happened to be the seat of the power, the capital of the Roman Empire in that part of the world. So in one sense, he's talking about the Romans who are brutally oppressing them, who think they're gods, right? I mean, their emperor Domitian called himself Dominus et Deus Noster. He said, when you talk to me, you say, you are our Lord and our God. Christians wouldn't say that, and he brutally oppressed them. He said, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Remember Jesus, in his ministry, he said, Satan is the ruler of this present world. And so you see this throne of God set in counterpoint to the throne of Satan here on earth, and here is the throne of God in heaven. So you see this unbelievable throne in heaven. You see, uh, by the way, Ezekiel chapter 1 has a very similar vision. Ezekiel chapter 1 is also apocalyptic literature, meaning it's vivid, it's crazy. His living creatures are even weirder than these. And so read Ezekiel chapter 1 and you'll see, whoa, this sounds a lot like Revelation because it's the same vision, the vision of the throne in heaven. So you see God in heaven contrasting with the throne of Satan on earth. 
And what God is saying is, this is the reality. You can't see it, but the reality is God is really in charge. Okay? Around that, you see these elders, these 24 elders. They're clothed in white, and they have crowns on their heads. So let's talk about what those symbols mean. What does white clothing mean? We've talked about this once. Pure, righteous, not necessarily their own righteousness. What does Jesus talk about? I've, you've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. You know, though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow because of the blood of the Lamb. It's not that they are righteous, it's just that because of Christ, they're now dressed in brand new white robes. It's like, whoa, I'm righteous now. I've been reconciled to God. So they're righteous. They are God's people. In some sense, they've been redeemed, right? So the white clothes are righteousness. The crown is interesting for this reason. There are two words going to be used for crown, two Greek words. One of them is diadem, literally. I mean, that's the Greek word, it's the English word, diadem. That's used of a ruler's crown to mean authority. This is a different word. It's, by the way, the word Stephen. If your name is Stephen, that means crown. It's the Greek word for crown. They're wearing stephanos. They're wearing these crowns. Those, that's the word for something you get for winning the race. Like when you won the race in the Olympics, you would receive this crown, this wreath on your head. A stephanos is what it's called. So they have white clothes because they've been redeemed and they've got these crowns. In the scriptures where Paul talks about those who persevere will receive a crown of righteousness. That's this word. In other words, if you finish the race, if you persevere, you get this crown. That's what they're wearing. So they're righteous, they've been redeemed, they have the crown of those who have been faithful to death. And then the fact that there are 24. Now this is where everybody's going to disagree, all right, about exactly what. 24 is an interesting number for two reasons. One, if you remember your Old Testament history, and if you don't, that's okay. There were 24 orders of the Levitical priesthood. So there's some sense in which the 24 could be representing sort of like priests, and priests were representative of God's people. So a lot of futurists, by the way, would see these, in particular, see this as the raptured church. This is God's people. They're redeemed. They've received the crown of righteousness that was promised in the scriptures. And so they'll see this as the raptured church, a representative. It's a symbol of the raptured church. Does that make sense? Because these aren't angels, or at least they're not called angels. They're just called elders. So they'd see that as the raptured church. Others would say, well, wait a minute. It's more likely just to be a symbol of all God's people. For example, there were 12 patriarchs. The 12 tribes of Israel, that's 12 guys, and they're called the patriarchs. You have the 12 apostles. And in chapter 21 of Revelation, you're going to see those put together. 12 and 12 are going to be 24. Some would say the 24 elders represent, it's symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles in the church, meaning all of God's people through all time. There are angels up here worshiping. These elders are representative of us, all people worshiping. Or there are 24 angels who are representative. Remember back in chapter 1 where uh, Jesus said, I hold in my hand the stars are the angels of the churches. So maybe these are angels that represent God's people. But in any case, whatever your view, the thought is, is that the 24 elders in some way represent God's people, whether it's the raptured church or just faithful people because they've been washed clean and they have the crown. So the elders represent in some way, 
uh, God's people. The living creatures, who are these guys? Right? They are weird looking, and there are four of them. Well, there's a clue right there. We talked about the number four, and you're going to see some interesting numbers through here. The number four, uh, if you remember, was symbolic of created things. And sure enough, that's exactly what they appear to be. The number four is created things. And in fact, uh, as I go through here, I'm just going to give you a couple of verses to look at later. When they're talking about things on earth, in chapter 5, verse 9, they're singing this new song to the Lamb, and they say, Worthy are you to take the scroll, because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Who'd you ransom? Every tribe and language and people and nation. Four adjectives. What? Representing all the people on earth, all the created stuff. You redeemed it. Four. They happen to have four different faces, which is also telling, because in Jewish thinking, in the Talmud, and the rabbis taught that all created beings were pretty much represented by four creatures. The lion was the strongest of all wild animals. The ox was the strongest of all domesticated animals. The eagle was the mightiest of all the creatures of the air, and man was the greatest of all of God's creation. And so they saw in those four creatures a representative of all created beings. You'll see this same imagery, very similar, also in the book of Ezekiel. You'll see this, uh, this idea. And as a matter of fact, these living creatures, these four living creatures in Ezekiel uh, are called cherubim. So cherubim are angelic beings. Now, do they literally have eyes all over them and six wings? Don't know if that's literally what they look like or that, is that symbolic? Do some of them have a face of a man and an ox? Or is that a symbol that these living creatures represent all of creation. And so there are four of them. They have the four faces of all the creatures. These cherubim, by the way, show up other places in Scripture. These are not wimps. I know when you think of a cherub, in the Middle Ages they started painting cherubs as these fat little babies with wings, right? That's kind of where you get the idea of Cupid with his bow. That's not these guys. These are the guys who, remember in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve were kicked out? Back to our Genesis. What did God put outside the Garden of Eden to guard it so they couldn't go back? A cherub, and he was a warrior with a flaming sword. In the Holy of Holies were two carved cherubim to guard the Holy of Holies. So these cherubs, and by the way, you're going to see them a lot, and they're dealing a lot of serious smack later. In, I mean, these guys are not wimps. All right, so you get the idea. These are angelic beings but in some way they represent all of the created order. And so when they're worshiping God, they're angelic beings worshiping on behalf of us, of every creature that's ever been created. So that's basically what they are. By the way, Isaiah also talks about angelic beings that have six wings, but he calls them seraphim. And so that's where the words seraphim and cherubim come from. They're some kinds of angelic beings. And I don't know if they physically look that way or if that's the vision because of the symbols. The faces are a symbol of created beings. What about the eyes? Do they literally have eyes everywhere? Not necessarily. Eyes represent watchfulness. And he says they're covered with eyes everywhere. And so the point is they're watchful. They're attending God. Does that make sense? So you get this idea of angelic beings representing all of creation, worshiping God, who are ever watchful and ever present. 
That's probably what that symbol means. Does that make sense? Does that tell you what a cherub looks like? Will you recognize one if you see him on the street? Maybe not. But if he's saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, he's probably a cherub. Because that's what they sing the whole time. Okay? Then you see this scroll. Scroll's very interesting. You got a scroll that's written on the inside. On the outside, it's sealed with seven seals. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. By the way, Daniel gets through seeing some visions, and God says, I want you to write that down, but seal it up, and don't tell anybody because the time's not right. Some people think this scroll is the rest of that revelation. Well, there's some truth to that because when you start opening that scroll, everything that happens to chapter 19 all comes from opening up those seals on that scroll. There's something pretty powerful written on that scroll, and we'll talk about that. So maybe it is that revelation. In those days, in the Roman world, uh, wills were sealed with seven seals. Emperor's wills, I don't know about common people's, but Vespasian's will was sealed by seven witnesses. Put some wax on there, put their little seal on it, saying, Terry witnessed this will. And there were seven people that had to witness a will. And so some have said, this is clearly imagery that says, this is a will and testament, right? This is a bequeath, and the lamb, Christ is the executor of this. He's going to go open up the will and say, this is what's going to happen to God's possession. This is what's going to happen to the earth. It's not pretty, but this is what's going to happen. So some say it's a will. Others would say it's a deed, because in Hebrew, a lot of times they would write on the outside of a deed, because if you've got a scroll and you need to file it, you don't want to be opening it up to go, oh, that's my neighbor's house, that's not mine. You know, oh, here's my plat. They'd write on the outside what was inside the scroll, right? And they would seal it up. Not necessarily with seven seals, but the fact that it's seven means something, doesn't it? That's a, that's a, you, whenever you see the number seven, suspect something symbolic. So some think that it's uh, a deed. And so the lamb is taking ownership of all of creation. It's the deed to the universe. Others think that it's simply God's judgment. It's his judgment on evil in the world. And the, the truth of that would be what happens later. As he starts opening those seals, you begin to see God judging people, creation, evil, Satan, everybody. And so some would say it's that. So whatever your view about exactly what's in the scroll, it's clearly something important that God has given him to the lamb to execute. And as we begin to open it up, the tribulation starts to happen. So the scroll is very important, and it contains the key to everything that's going to happen after that. And then finally, the lamb. Well, that doesn't need a lot of explanation, but it's very interesting that the elder says to him, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, and I looked, and I saw a lamb. Isn't that interesting? But that is the Messiah. You get the conquering Davidic Messiah and the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He's a lion. No, wait, he's a lamb who was slain. Exactly. That is Jesus. He is the conqueror, but he conquers through his sacrifice. He is the Passover lamb, but he's also the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the conqueror, but he conquers through his sacrifice. That's kind of the idea of the lamb. This lamb, though, is interesting because he has seven horns and seven eyes. That's easy. Horns always mean power or strength. We're going to talk about some earthly kings that are horns, and they're going to have some power. What does seven horns mean? All-powerful. Eyes. Eyes are knowledge, watchfulness. What are seven eyes? All knowledge. 
So this is a, a stark claim that the Lamb is God. He is omnipotent and he is omniscient. Seven horns, seven eyes. Did he really see a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes, or are those symbols? The point is it's apocalyptic literature. It doesn't matter what the lamb looked like. The point is the vision is telling you that Jesus Christ is all-powerful and, all, and omniscient. Does that make sense? That's what's happening. You're going to see the fours and the threes and the sevens everywhere. I already told you when they were talking about people, they had a four. Let me tell you when they're talking about God, chapter 4, verse 9. The uh, living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to God. Three is the number of divinity. You'll see when they say, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. And then in the final song, when they're all singing, these hundred million angels are singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Not just the divine attributes, but everything. All of creation, all of many, everything praises you. Does that make sense? You're, so as you go through and you read, and I hope you read as we go through, watch, because you'll see these threes and fours and sevens. When it's applied to God, it's usually three or seven. When it's applied to humanity, usually you'll see four things, like the four living creatures. So you're going to see these symbols go through, and as you decode them, they, it just pops out at you that you're seeing the symbology What's the lesson there? The lesson is God is divine and the Lamb is worthy of all praise of all creation. He is the Lord of everything. He has the deed or the scroll or the judgment to all of creation. So Revelation, you see the predictions of Scripture begin to come true. Well, let me pause there because there's a really great lesson that pops out of that. But I hope that you're inspired by this worship and that as we go through and decode it and you realize what's happening here is the 24 elders, all of God's people, are worshiping God. 100 million angels worshiping God. The four living creatures, which represent every created thing in the universe, animals, plants, dogs, mosquitoes, everything worship. Like Romans 8, 28 says the whole creation is waiting for God to make it new. What you see here is everything is worshiping God, and that's what's at the center of the universe. It's a powerful vision. Questions? Um, we talked about the four creatures representing all of creation. Mm -hmm. They're, what about sea creatures? Sea creatures get short shrift in the scripture. It's, it's almost like they just kind of get forgotten. They're actually going to get destroyed in some really creative ways in the next couple of lessons. But uh, sea creatures, you really tend to, to see it's symbolic. All right, So they're not trying to list everything. But they'll, sometimes you'll see all the creatures of the air and the earth and the sea when we get further on. They just don't happen to be mentioned in this. But that's not what the, the apocalyptic literature doesn't understand you know, sea creatures as being one of the great four. Uh, just not what they use. It's just a symbol. It's just a method of talking. The other questions I have go back to the beginning. Do you want to do that? Sure. We'll do that quickly, okay. and then we'll pull the lesson out. And I have a couple of them that reference... Um, different quotations of Jesus and uh -huh. they kind of fit in the same category dealing with um, time frames, linear, mm -hmm. a linear progression okay. and also is it futurist, historic, that kind of thing. So the, how does the futurist deal with, with what Jesus said 
that a generation will not pass until all things are fulfilled? Good question. That's one of the reasons preterists exist. Preterists say, I mean, and there's pros and cons to every one of these views, and I just want you to think about it. We'll, we'll talk about all the pros and cons. That's a good preterist question. Basically, preterists say all this stuff is happening right around the time of the writing. And I didn't go into great detail here, but basically the fall of Jerusalem around 70 AD, potentially all the way up to the fall of the Roman Empire. Okay? So these things are happening here. If you understand that in that very specific way, that all this stuff has to happen before that generation died, then you would probably be a preterist. That's not the only way to understand that passage, but if you do, you'd probably say, yeah, this is all about the fall of Jerusalem. That's why preterists exist, is they, they would say that that would indicate that the way you ought to understand these visions is that they happened shortly after the time of Jesus. So that is why you might be a preterist. And Jesus told the thief on the cross that today you'll be with me in paradise. Does that not indicate an immediate <clears throat> movement to heaven? Exactly. So you got two different views. And what I told you was they're interestingly little hints. He doesn't say heaven. He says paradise. That's a little troubling, but let's not quibble. He's obviously going somewhere good, right, with Jesus at that point in time. And so you could argue based on that, well, maybe everybody does go to heaven. But then you read 1 Thessalonians 4 and you go, well, wait a minute. When Jesus comes, they're coming up out of the grave. And that's what I mean is you can hold these two points of view and likely they're both true. But if you believe that we do in terms of linear time frames, it's hard to understand how they're both true. And so the scripture just isn't really clear. So that verse would lead you to believe that dead people are either in heaven or hell right now the Thessalonians verse would lead you to be, well, wait a minute. Apparently, they've slept. That's why there are two views. Okay? Well, let me go ahead and get you the lesson out of this because I want to, I want to draw an interesting idea out of chapters 4 and 5. Church being persecuted, and the first thing Jesus says is, I'm going to tell you all the stuff that's going to happen, but first, I want you to get a glimpse of what's really going on in heaven. Is God worried about Satan? Nope. Is God worried that the world is going to crush his people and evil is going to overcome the church? No. In fact, they're having an unbelievable party in heaven. And your prayers are being offered up like incense, like sweet smells to God by the living creatures and the elders who are representing you in heaven. And your Jesus, who intercedes for you, is standing literally at the right hand of God, and he owns everything. Satan thinks he owns this place Jesus has the deed to this place. So he says, I want you to take heart. Remember what he said? In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome this world. He says, I own this place. So if you are persecuted, it's not because God is not powerful enough. It's because it serves God's purposes, and we'll see that unfold as the scroll gets opened. You will begin to see what might God's purpose be in this difficulty and in this suffering. And we're going to talk about that. But as you and I go through difficulties in life, whether it be persecution or it be sickness or grief or sorrow or any of the things that happen in this fallen, broken, hurtful world, whatever they may be, I really want you to look at this image because this is Jesus. This is Jesus' answer to us in a vivid way. It says a couple of things. One, you will overcome because Jesus already has overcome. When we're in the middle of a trial, we're like, oh, 
are we going to be able to overcome? Jesus, are we going to make it through this? Jesus goes, already been there, already have overcome. That's why you see this vision of the lamb at the throne of God. He's already conquered. You and I don't see it yet. That's why in Romans 8, 28, it can say, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not necessarily all things work together to give me a comfortable life, but all things work together for good. How can you say that? Because he's already overcome. This battle is already over. Now, here's an interesting lesson for you and me. When you and I get into troubles, whether it's financial troubles or marital troubles or whatever, pick your, your sins, the struggles that we face, we sometimes have a really image of a weak God. Oh, God, I hope you can get me through this. Oh, God, would you show up? You didn't help me yesterday. I hope you can be here to help me today. Sounds like a repairman who won't show up. I mean, you know, have you ever had one of those guys that you call, call, I need you to fix my air conditioner. Yeah, I'll be there tomorrow. Don't show up tomorrow. Be there the next day. Don't show up the next day. What are you going to call and bug them, bug them, bug them, bug them? Sometimes we think about God as an unreliable repairman, and I just need to stay after him. That's a teeny little God. We sometimes have this little image of God. God, I hope you can get me through it. You know, I hope you'll show up today and fix my life. That's a little God. What is this picture of God in 4 and 5? That's a God with sovereignty. That's a God who's sitting on the throne. You can't even see his face. John can't even describe him except he glows. I cannot tell you what he even looks like. This is unbelievable. All I can tell you is there's 100 million angels. There's these four living creatures, and everybody's singing this song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they're all worshiping God, and he is in charge, and he is powerful, and it is unbelievable how powerful this God is. That's the God you want to envision when you are wrestling with problems because that's who your God really is. So if Christians are going to overcome trials in this world, you need the picture of that God, not the picture of this little God we sometimes worship. Does that make sense? If you're troubled, read chapter 4 and 5 and go, that's my God. That's what's really happening. And there is nothing that can overcome me in this world. Make sense? That's how I want you to live this week. I want you to live like your God is the God of chapter 4 and chapter 5. Because next week, the Lamb is going to open those seals and all hell is going to break loose. <laughs> Literally. I'll see you then, and we'll open the seals. <laughs>